This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Acts chapter 21. When we arrive at Acts chapter 21, and particularly right there in the middle of the chapter, we are at the end of what we call uh, Paul's third missionary journey. After verse 17 and on, uh, the focus will be on Paul's arrest and then the various trials that he will face, legal trials, on his way to Rome, including his time in Rome. And so what we have here before us, beginning at verse 36 of chapter 20, which we looked at last week, are some transitional verses, we said, that almost can read like just a travel log, but really there is a lot in there by way of principle in the narrative. For example, last week, if you were here, we reflected on the value of Christian friendships, uh, the great contribution that spiritual friendships make to the mission, particularly to the mission of Paul. And this morning, I want to focus in on another theme. I know there are a lot of questions that arise from some of the events in this chapter. What I want to focus on is obedience and the conflicting voices of Christian counsel. That is, Paul's obedience to his call in the midst of conflicting voices of dear friends who were counseling him to do otherwise. So I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit we were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Uh, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. 
And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Pray God will bless this reading and hearing to your heart. Lord, we pray one last time for the work of your spirit, helping us, God, to be enriched, to understand, to appreciate what you have to say to us. So speak to our hearts, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Many of you, especially of the older generation, will recognize that quote. Uh, For some of you who don't recognize it, it is a quote of the young Jim Elliott, missionary to the Alca Indians of Ecuador. Uh, He lost his life along with four other dear friends when they were martyred not too long after they just began to make contact with uh, the Alca Indians in Ecuador. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But many of you, even if you recognize that quote, you may not know that he was forcefully encouraged not to go. He was persuasively told by his family and friends that he had too much to offer here in the United States. I was reading from The Shadow of the Almighty, Under the Shadow of the Almighty, which was um, written by his then wife, Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Schaefer, and so forth. He was too gifted for a mission field like uh, the jungles of Ecuador. And the people who said this to Jim Elliot loved him and loved the Lord. And they wanted his best. In their mind, they wanted the best for the Lord as well. But Jim Elliot went anyhow. (laughs) And some wondered, did he make a mistake? He died so soon. You know, he was so young. He could have done much more, couldn't he? Here at home, people thought. Well, you know, this passage that I read from, taken in its context, uh, reveals the tense interplay that can take place at times between obedience to God's call in your life, or I might say God's will as you understand it, and the conflicting voices of Christian friends, (laughs) brothers and sisters. Commenting on this, tension in this chapter, which not every commentator really sees, but commenting on it, Ajith Fernando writes, Paul's close friends did not understand the path he was taking. Heroes are usually admired only from a distance. When they are actually doing the work that ultimately leads to their becoming heroes, it seems so costly, strange, and foolish. Their loved ones see the cross of suffering and want to spare them the pain. But it's the pain that's going to make them a hero. <laughs> and, and that's certainly what some people thought about Jim Elliot, you know. And I want to say that all of us, if you're a Christian, if we are obedient to Christ, we will face difficult circumstances. We will have across the bear, such as the nature of, of following the Lord Jesus. We've talked about that here, the cost of discipleship. 
And at times, uh, there will be decisions you have to make which are not black and white obedience to a commandment of the Lord, but is God's will as you discern it and a desire to please the Lord. And there will be people around you who, like for Paul, like for Jim Elliott, will try to shield you from the cross of suffering that they perceive to be ahead as a result of your decision. Yeah. Don't go. <laughs> Don't stay. <laughs> not there. Not here. <laughs> Buy this, not that. You know. Not him, not her. <laughs> and they'll do that out of love. And some may even evoke the name of the Lord. The Lord told me to tell you. Even in the closest spiritual friendships in the church, which Paul had with these people, remember we reflected on that last week, there will be conflicting voices at crossroads such as these. And so how do we respond? That's what I want to talk about today. How do we respond? That's what this passage, I think, helps us understand in a narrative form, right? It's an instructive account of how to remain true to Christ's call in your life, His will as you discern it, and respond to the warnings of the sufferings that may lie ahead that come from your loved ones due to the decision that you are making. In other words, obeying God's call, His will as you discern it, in the midst of the conflicting voices of Christian counsel. This is not, I want to say right at the front, this is not some exhaustive topical Bible study on how to discern the will of God for your life. As if it's a dot that we can always put our fingers on, right? It is what I just said. Obeying God's call, His will as you discern it, in the midst of conflicting opinions, right? What all begins, the tension in the narrative begins in verse 4. If one was reading his way through the, through the book of Acts, you would feel the tension that emerges in verse 4. And verse 4 says, Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. You say, why is this the beginning of tension? Because in chapter 19, verse 21, again, if you were flowing through, you would remember this verse there. It says that after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, and there's a definite article there, he resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so you have Paul resolving in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And you have people attired telling him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. But when you look at chapter 19, uh, it appears very clear that Jerusalem is the will of God. It's the will of the Holy Spirit, and it certainly is Paul's plan. He is resolved. And they tell him through the Spirit not to go. This had to be hard emotionally for Paul. Already he, he, Luke, and company had gone through this deeply emotional farewell from the elders of Ephesus. Remember at the end of chapter 20, it doesn't say they said that, but you can imagine they would have said it, the way they're weeping and kissing him. Remember verse, the verse 1 there, when we had departed, that verb means when we managed to tear ourselves away from them. So he's already gone through that, 
And now here in verse 4, the form of this verb is the imperfect tense, which means that they were continually, they were repeatedly telling him not to go to Jerusalem. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we bring these together? Does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? Does the Holy Spirit, just to mess with Paul's brain, give him two different messages, you know? I think not. I think not. I, there are various ways to resolve the tension. Some, like, like Dr. James Boyce, he and others conclude that Paul made a sinful decision. That indeed the Holy Spirit changed, or at least this was misunderstood earlier, and Paul, in the face of the Spirit's clear direction, chose to disobey. If you read their commentaries, you'll see that in there. Now, I don't think Paul's sinless, but I also don't think that this is what's happening here. I don't think that's the right understanding of it. No, it was tough for Paul to move in this direction, that's for sure. And if it gets even harder, you saw what happened at verse 8. They continue on their course after all that pleading, and they keep going. They come to the house of Philip the evangelist. We're told that he was one of the seven. Remember, one of the seven, what we call maybe proto-deacons, those who were chosen to serve the body in the earlier chapters. He's also Philip the evangelist, he's called here. Uh, remember, not, he's not called Philip the servant, but Philip the evangelist. I think the emphasis on he was the one who brought the gospel, the, the first one to bring the gospel to a Gentile, even ahead of Peter, when he shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And it says that they spent, this is just a side note, but it says that they spent many days there. And many scholars, because of what Eusebius and other early church fathers say, believe that Philip the evangelist and his four daughters were some of the best sources for Luke regarding uh, the events of Jesus' life and what happened in the early church. So you can imagine, he, he loved being there, uh, asking Philip, what was it like, this and that, and going over the early days of the church with him and so forth. And so he finds himself there in the house of Philip the evangelist. And we're told there that he has four daughters who prophesied. Now, I could spend a lot of time here and get in deep trouble. I'm not going to do it. Um, he has four daughters who prophesied. I will say a couple of things so that we can stay on the main point. Uh, and that is that it costs a lot of money to have four daughters. No, that's not my point. <laughs> Uh, that's not my main point. <laughs> he had four daughters who prophesied, and just in a general sense, remember, prophecy in the New Testament is both not just foretelling the future, but foretelling as well, right? Um, and prophecy had an important role in the beginning of the church. And I want to underscore two things here. First of all, what we, what we note here, just in that little detail, is that Joel's prophecy, which you remember in chapter 2, Peter said was being fulfilled. Here's another example of how Joel's prophecy was being fulfilled, how the Lord was keeping his word. On the day of Pentecost, the, the Lord poured his Holy Spirit upon people. They spoke in tongues, and the disciples were surrounded by people who questioned them and said, what is this? Peter stood up and answered him in, in Acts chapter 2. And he says there, part of what his answer was, he's, he quotes Joel, and he says, this is what the prophet Joel said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And so just in passing, we're seeing here 
that God is keeping his word. This was happening, I think, in the apostolic age as the gospel was spread, as the church was being established, churches were being planted. Uh, Paul would later write to the church at Ephesus soon in chapter 2, verse 20, and he says that the apostles were teaching, the prophets were prophesying, and they became the foundation of the church and included the daughters. So that's one thing I want to I want to say about that. Secondly, I want to underscore again how freely Luke puts forth the prominent role the woman can have in the church, in the mission. Uh, remember, this is one of Luke's sub-themes. This is volume two. Volume one is the gospel of Luke. Volume two is, is the book of Acts. And Luke, more than other gospel writers and more than any New Testament writers, keeps putting in front of us circumstances that show uh, the way the gospel and the way Jesus elevated the role of woman as viewed in the culture at that time. Uh, in the gospel, it's the women who are the very first witnesses and key witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus it's in the book of Acts. He presents this Priscilla who teaches right alongside her husband Aquila in the discipleship of Apollos. He told us of Dorcas, the woman with good deeds. He told us of Lydia, a, a Gentile convert who becomes an important um, uh, sponsor and financial supporter of the mission in the town of Philippi and and so forth. Remember that positions of prominence for women uh, uh, in the time of the New Testament was not very common except in uh, imperial families and so forth. And the New Testament letters that Paul will write and others tell us that men and women, this is the point, men and women uh, are equal spiritually in the kingdom of God while maintaining differences which our culture is obliterating. Equal spiritually, yet different, and in that difference, there is some differences in roles in the family and in the church. Some use this passage to, to say that this is an example of, of women pastors. But remember, Paul becomes very clear that that's not the case, that that's where God will maintain a distinction. To prophesy is not to be a pastor. It's a ministry not an office. So that's as much as I'll say. I may have gotten myself in a little trouble, but it could have been a lot worse here. So, <laughs> so uh, we pass right through that section. I want to focus on even though Philip had four daughters who prophesy, it's a prophet who comes down from Judea, the region uh, where Jerusalem is, that area, and his name is Agabus, and I think, though Luke doesn't say, that he's the same Agabus we met in chapter 11, 28. In chapter 11, Agabus the prophet prophesied, he foretold that a great famine was coming. And so this man, Agabus, comes down, and we're told this is what happens. While we're staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Verse 11, coming to us, meaning Philip's host, house, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. The belt was a belt that would be strapped maybe several times around his body and had space in there to put money and things he were carrying, you know, a little different than our belt. So he had enough length to wrap his own his feet, his own hands with. And he does this. This is like an acted parable. 
which was common with some of the Old Testament prophets. And so Agabus does the same thing. And it's a tremendous thing to have some guy take your belt off, flop around the ground, tie himself up, and say, this is what's going to happen to you. And you know who said it? The Holy Spirit said that. I'm not making this up. So again, now what? What do we do with this? How do you bring all this together? Chapter 19, 21, the Spirit, in the Spirit, he res- he comes to the conclusion he is to go to Jerusalem in in the city of Tyre. He's told through the Spirit, we're told not to go to Jerusalem. Here the Spirit says this is what's going to happen to you. Well, first of all, notice, read it very carefully. carefully, Agabus does not prohibit Paul from going to Jerusalem. There's a difference between a warning and a prohibition. Or as one commentator said, a difference between a prediction and a prohibition. And this is what this was. It was a very strong warning in the form of a prediction, a prophecy that came from the Holy Spirit. But there was no prohibition there. It was just a a clarification of what Paul has said the Spirit's been telling him in every city. Verse 23 of chapter 20. Remember? The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. For a long time, there's been a dark cloud over Paul as he approaches every city where he intends to preach the gospel. And as he's making his way, uh, as he takes one more step closer to Jerusalem, particularly here near the end, the Holy Spirit keeps making clearer, makes clearer, what it means that chains and afflictions await him. Now he's learned this. He's learned that the source of the affliction is going to be the Jews who will hand him over to the Gentiles. So still, how do we reconcile, however, what, he, what we're told in 1921 and bring verse 4 in and bring this verse in? Well, verse 11 here, verse 11 being the clearer statement, a warning, right? And verse 4, being more ambiguous, it leads us to understand verse 4, I think, in similar light. In other words, through the Spirit, verse 4, they were telling him not to go. But through the Spirit does not mean that they were given words by the Holy Spirit to say, you cannot go or you must not go. Luke doesn't write that they said what they said, thus says the Holy Spirit. He does that here, but he doesn't do that back there. I think Luke has condensed in a very simple phrase what took place there entire. I think think what's happening here is that through the Holy Spirit, they are moved out of compassion for Paul and love for Paul, which after all is the fruit of the Spirit. And through this motivation of the Spirit to love Paul, they're moved to say, don't go, Paul. Don't go, you see. But that is their their take on what to do with the information the Holy Spirit has given, which is he's going to suffer, and it's going to be bad. Uh, I think that's the better way to understand it. Uh, As one commentator says, the warning was divine while the urging was human. (laughs) Don't go. Jamelia, you have so much more to offer here at home. Don't go. It's going to be harder. Don't you want to have a family? When are you going to get married? That's what they told him. The warning was divine. The urging was human. 
they respond to the revelation of the spirit of his suffering with spirit-inspired, motivated love and compassion. In verse 12, even Luke is moved to add his own voice. Verse 12, when we heard this, what Agabus said, we, Luke includes himself and those who were traveling with Paul, when we heard this, we and the people there, Philip's house, urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Wow. And evidently, they were really, really pressuring Paul hard. I mean, this was on and on and on and on because Paul finally says, Luke records that Paul says, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing weeping? Meaning they were weeping with him and breaking my heart. Uh, The verb breaking my heart means to break something into pieces. It means to smash something into powder. It was used of pounding clothes until they were clean. Uh, Darrell Bach says they were pounding on Paul's emotions. What are you doing, says Paul? You're crushing my heart. And by saying that, Paul reveals that he... He knows they love him and he loves them and he knows this is going to mean what the Spirit says. He won't see them again. He wasn't cold to this. His heart was broken. And we find in here an echo of the Lord Jesus, don't we? A man called to go to Jerusalem, told by a dear friend named Peter, no, you'll never... That'll never happen to you. You won't be crucified, Lord. And Paul, as it were, has his own Gethsemane. You know, what a difficult position to be in. You're moved in your heart. You're moved in your heart by what you understand clearly to be God's calling for your life. You are informed by the Holy Spirit, in Paul's case, directly informed by the Holy Spirit, that this is going to involve tremendous suffering. But you face repeated, tearful Please, from people who love you and they're telling you not to heed this impulse you have because of the cross that lies ahead for you. That's a hard place to be. I think the response of people around Paul is very understandable. I think you understand that too, right? I don't think anyone, we're not told this, but I don't think anyone was saying, disobey God's command. (laughs) You You can understand the kind of things they were thinking. Perhaps they were simply saying, Jerusalem, yes, not now, Paul, not now. There's a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, you know, unrest up there right now against you. People are talking about you in Jerusalem. Yes, Jerusalem, just not now. There's no need to press on today, maybe tomorrow, you know. People who love him maybe are simply looking for another way, another time. But no one's saying disobey the word of God. They try to shield him from the cross that he, that he knows lies ahead for him. And you may face and you may have already faced. Circumstances like this, moments like these, right? Where people who love you try and discourage you from taking steps of what you think will bring glory to Christ. You know, it's not a black and white command. You don't have to do that. You don't have to stay. You don't have to go. You don't have to take this on. You don't have to uh, give so much. But you, you've determined it, it, is, it is what God is leading you to do. And you're, you're, you're convinced you want to do this. And you understand it's going to be hard in some ways. And there'll be people around you who 
out of love for you, want to shield you from doing that. And that'll bring a whole lot of difficulty in your life, you know. A lot of people thought what Jamelia did was foolish. And, you know, for the longest time it did look that way because he and his friends were killed and not much happened. And if you keep reading in the biographies and you read in the history that followed, it was decades, but decades later, the fruit sprung up from that soil and the blood that he shed on that beach. All in God's time. But in many ways, a lot of people thought he looked like a fool for a long, long time, giving his life for a people that didn't care at all, along with his friends. What to do, you know? What do you do when you find yourself there? I remember when Sharon and I, not on any level like Jamelia, but just decided to move from our family, go to seminary, move to L.A., leave the church we were at, plant Grace, come to Plant Grace Bible Church. This is the kind of things we heard from, from friends and family. Do you want to be separated from the family? Don't you want, and so forth. What do you do? Well, you start with this. Listen, listen to them, but learn to distinguish between God's revelation and human application. Learn to distinguish the difference, right? The warning is divine. The urging is human. People make fallible deductions from God's infallible word. In this case, we're not talking about a passage that Paul was responding to. But what was true of a prophecy is true of Scripture in ways where you seek to apply Scripture in your life and your devotion to Christ. It's open to different deductions, different ways of applying it, and people may be fallible in how they do it. You may be fallible in how you're applying what Scripture says, so you need to be meek and gentle and listen to them. What was the word for Paul? Pain lies ahead. <laughs> Pain lies ahead. And some people simply took that and said, you know, Paul, you've fled persecution before. You let yourself be led out of a, out of a wall in a basket. You know, what's, what's the difference here? What's the difference now, Paul? But he would not be persuaded. At that moment for him, it was the difference between obedience to how he has perceived he can glorify Christ and personal safety. And he chose obedience to that submission to that call in his life to glorify Christ. Um, God's call as he perceived it. Well, Paul isn't persuaded, right? Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, meaning he would not be persuaded to change his mind about going to Jerusalem, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Well, before I talk about how Paul came to resist that persuasion and remain committed, I want to talk about the interaction there that took place. I want to say this. I want you to see a couple of things. First, I want you to see that one thing Luke makes clear is that though the call was God's, God the Holy Spirit, the choice was Paul's. 
We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in God's sovereign will. We believe in God's universal sovereignty, and He orders all things, but that does never make us robots. God orders life in such a way that our commitments to His call for us, our devotion to Christ, is voluntary. That you make the choice. And here He's given Paul several, several opportunities to make clear the choice was his, right? In every city, the Holy Spirit tells me what lies ahead. But he never says, don't go. And so it's clear that his devotion is voluntary. And why is that? Because the Christian life is worship. It is a response to the grace of God in our lives. It's not some sort of robotic submission to someone who is a puppet master controlling every detail of your life in a way that you have nothing to do with it. What torture was in Paul's heart <laughs> on the beach at Miletus when he left the elders? What torture was in his heart in the city of Tyre when these disciples repeatedly tell him, don't go. And what torture was in his heart when finally, in the house of Philip, even Luke turns to him. Says, don't go. Don't do it. Secondly, I want you to notice that they surrendered to God's sovereign will along with Paul. Oh, to have friends like that. It makes these hard moments in life all the more bearable with big decisions like that. They surrendered to God's sovereign will. Since he would not be persuaded, here are the words, we ceased. We ceased. Some people will never cease. <laughs> and they'll remind you of that, and they'll bug you, and they'll pound you, but you notice what his friends did. We ceased. And what did they said? They said, and Luke is the same author that wrote in the gospel the words of the Lord in Gethsemane. They said, let the, let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, they were ready to, to say, in this situation, which is not black and white, it's not like you're breaking a commandment of God, in this situation where you have decided that this is the will of God for your life and we tried to persuade you, we told you the pros and cons and you even had a guy come down here, wrap himself up and give you this, uh, this picture and all that. You have decided, you've determined, Paul, that you can't be persuaded that this is the will of God for your life. Let the will of the Lord be done. And they ceased. Right. Strong are the friendships. We talked about last week. Strong are the friendships that can work through such differences of opinions when it comes to the application of truth and then come together and stay together and say, may the Lord's will be done. You know, this, Gordon Ketty in his commentary says, this was not some grim resignation, but a believing acquiescence. And some simply can't have this, you know that? You know, for some, it's their way, 
or the highway. <laughs> and again, I'm talking about how you live, how you apply, or how you respond to the call of God in your life or to a set of situations, you know. You, you have to have this. You have to have this sort of depth of friendship even through wrestling, let's say, in a plurality of elders. When the minority is given time to voice their opinion and at the end of the day, it's the decisions made, all elders have to say, may the will of the Lord be done. And strong is the friendships that can endure that. But for some, it's just impossible, right? They figured out not only God's will for their life, by God, they've, they fill out the will of God for everyone's life. And so it's their way or the highway. I hope you have friends and you're making friends and you're deepening friendships whereby you can work through issues like this and maybe tearfully, yes, tearfully, but come to, come to the conclusion, may the Lord's will be done, brother. May the Lord's will be done, sister. May God be with you in what you're choosing to do. We'll pray for you. We'll support you. Um, we cease. Cease and desist. <laughs> and submit to the Lord's will in your life. Well, finally, how about Paul? His perspective of all this. We get down to the, the, the heart of the matter. How did Paul respond to God's call in the midst of these pressuring, loving, conflicting opinions, voices of Christian counsel? Well, he possessed the right view of life, verse 13, and he possessed the right motive for life. And that will help you that will help you go a long ways in finding peace in hard decisions like this. He possessed the right view of life. He says, I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. In other words, I am ready to die. That's the right view of life. In other words, self-preservation wasn't Paul's main goal. It wasn't his chief goal. This is what he told the elders in chapter 20, 24, on the beach of Miletus. Remember, we looked at that. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, he says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, which was what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we said back then that it's not that Paul doesn't value life, that he doesn't value his life or value human life, is that he doesn't think the goal of life is simply to stay alive. That's, that's, that's what it meant. We should all value human life and the life that God's given us. Paul is not running towards martyrdom just because he thinks there's virtue in that and he doesn't value life. I think the, the reformer John Calvin got it right here. He was, says about Paul, he says he was not so gripped by a blind love of living that he lost sight of the reason for living. <laughs> hmm. He doesn't want to simply live. If he lives, he wants to live for the Lord. That's how Paul viewed life. And I would say to many a person, and you know, in the last several years, and then right now, many of you still, you're making big decisions. You know, life has thrown curveballs at a lot of you here, a lot of you away, and, 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 and speaking about making huge 
decisions about your direction or, or your life. There is nothing wrong fundamentally in seeking to better your position or better your life or, or certainly solve the problems that have been created by God's providences in your life. There's nothing wrong with seeking to, to, to provide more for your families in, a cer- in the circumstances in which we live or seek to have a better education that might lead to something. There's nothing wrong with any of those things fundamentally, but remember, those are not an end in themselves, which is where so many get themselves in trouble because opportunity has flooded, uh, opened the door open The question at the moment of opportunity is a crossroads for you. The question for you is, are you just seeking to live better or live for Christ? That's the question there. And that's between you and and the Lord. Um, Jim Elliott said other things that were memorable, such as, I seek not long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And so it was done. His prayer was answered. Paul would later write, or actually may have already written at this point, but he says, I remember Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. You're a living sacrifice. Not just to live, but live for Him. Or as someone has said, to live for Christ is to write God a blank check and say, you fill it in. For Paul, it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And that's how he got to Rome. He got an all-expenses-paid trip from Jerusalem to Rome. And you know who paid for it and sent guards for him and everything? Caesar. I mean, Paul couldn't have schemed that, could he? <laughs> and yet he got there. That's just how things work out. Who's, who's behind it all? It's the Lord. So, Possess the right view of life. That's key. Uh, Romans 14, 8. Find myself there somewhere. Here we go. Romans 14, 8. I'll read a 7. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Remember, we've been purchased at a price. You write that blank check. You know his words from Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what do you do? You make sure you possess the right view of life. It's not just to live or live more comfortably or live better or, you know, whatever. It's, it's to live for him. And then the next thing is possess the right motive for life. What he will do is, is, is give up his life, but he'll do it for the sake of the name. Right? The name of the Lord Jesus. For his sake. 
Remember that in the Bible, the name stands for the person. So for the name of Jesus stands for Jesus. I'm sure Paul heard indirectly from Ananias what the Lord told him when he sent him to speak to Paul. Remember in Acts chapter 9, 16, the Lord said, I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. And now Paul's been living with that. Now he knows where it's heading. And he says, I'm ready. This was my calling. Now I want to emphasize again that Paul had a unique calling as an apostle, right? But it was his calling to suffer for his name. And at this point he says, I'm ready. And I think that readiness was strengthened all the more by the pounding of the friends inadvertently coming at him with don't, 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 and him having to work through this, exercise it, and come back to his own point of conviction that no, I have to go. And he brought himself to the point where he could say, I am ready to die. But not just to die, but for the sake of the name. In other words, for Paul, why do this? Because the Lord is worthy of it for the sake of his name, for the sake of who he is. He is the eternal son of God, the one through whom God the Father created the universe, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, for the sake of who he is and for the sake of who he, what he's done. He is the redeemer, the lamb, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep who took upon himself the guilt for Paul's sin and my sin and your sin. He who was crucified and endured the wrath of the Father because of our sin and then was raised, you see. He's worthy of it, says Paul. That's why I'll go through this. I'm ready even to die. And Paul doesn't really know the details, all of them. The cloud has gotten darker. But more lies ahead. He has a right view of life and the right motive for life, and that is to do what? To honor the name of the Lord. And these things move Paul, I think, more than anything else. I'm convinced Paul never, never got over, never got over the fact that God loves him. He who was such a vicious and vile enemy of God and his people, he never got past that and you and I never should either get past that to the church at Galatia he writes Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live but, but Christ who lives me in me and it doesn't mean by this he doesn't think or do anything because he goes on and says and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He never got past that. He never got over that he was, in his mind, the chief of sinners, and Christ loved him. Colossians 3.17, he says to them, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, for the sake of the name, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's gratitude. Gratitude. He never got over how much he was loved by God in light of what he deserved. And, and neither should we. 
So let's reflect on this again by way of application. When you are obedient to Christ, and let's take, first of all, obedient to his word. Take something that is black and white. You must obey. Why? Because God has commanded it. When you're obedient to the word of God in regards to your view of sexuality, because the Bible has a lot to say about that. When you're obedient to God's word in, in light of, of what the word says about genders and gender roles, because the Bible has a lot to say about that. When you're obedient to God's word in regards to what it says about singleness and life and marriage and family and education and parenting and the use of your wealth. The Bible has a lot to say about all those things. When you are obedient to Christ, you will face circumstances that are difficult. You will have a cross to bear, such as the nature of following the Lord Jesus. It is the cost of discipleship. This is black and white. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12. That's it, black and white. And I hope, what, I hope you don't have friends who are trying to discourage you of that. Because that is black and white. And I'm here to tell you that His grace is sufficient for you to, to uphold you, to stay true to His Word. But that's not the exact case here, right? What we have here is someone who's responding to God's personal call for His life, His vocation, His calling, and how He lives out His devotion. And you will make similar choices that are not black and white. You're going to Attempt to discern what's the best thing to do with your life, your time, your money, in light of the circumstances, in light of God's words. And your choice will be your choice. And there may be some dissenting voices if what lies ahead for you because of your choice is difficulty, suffering, the cross. And people who love you will try to shield you from the cross. And I would, I would hope that some of you are making those kinds of choices. Meaning that it's clear that where you're going out of the desire to honor Christ may very well bring difficulty. It's good there's some people trying to speak to you about that. Because you've made Christ-honoring decision. And people will say this seems... Foolish or severe or costly. Don't change, don't go, don't stay. Not this, not that. How do you respond? Make sure you're distinguishing between God's revelation and human application. Listen to people, those that love you. The book of Proverbs speaks a lot about valuing godly counsel, heeding Godly counsel, Proverbs 15, 22 and 20, verse 18. Right? Listen to them. Allow people to speak in your life, friends who know the Lord and love you. Allow them to speak in your life, but at the end of the day, as one put, that, put it, love people, but love Jesus more. In other words, at the end of the day, on these hard, not black and white decisions, make sure... You're not trying to be a people pleaser, but a Christ pleaser, however you can weigh that. I know some of these things are, are difficult. Prize your devotion to Christ. Another one put it this way, value input 
but follow God's will. Listen. And then make sure you're possessing the right view of life. The goal, what is the goal of your decision? Is it simply to better? Nothing wrong to better, but to what end better? Why are you here? <laughs> Why is God giving you life on this earth and giving you time, you see? And then be sure that you are possessing the right motive behind this to exalt the value and worth of Christ, that people see the value of Christ by how you handled your decision. The value of Christ to you, he's worth this kind of decision. The Lord leads you in that. The more we see Christ, the more we value Christ, the more we value Christ, the more we'll make decisions designed to honor Christ and not simply make life a little, a little better. Seeing Christ, Jim Elliot was able to say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he burned bright... Not for very long, but man, he'd burn bright. I pray the same for each one of you. May God lead you in some of, of these hard choices that you're making or may have to make here in the near future. And one last word, and that is for those who think, you know what, I think I made the wrong choice. You're looking back. I want to remind you that, that you, you live under the cross of Christ. And... He's waiting with open arms for your confession and you're just coming to him and saying, I should have listened. Your sins are forgiven. So don't brew in that forever. Please don't. There's so much more to live for here for Christ, okay? All right. Let's take a moment of silent contemplation. A lot said today. And then I'll pray and we'll finish our time.